Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. Before we get going, I'd just like to say thank you for all the kind comments about the Gene Cernan interview. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we we obviously expect kind comments, but it was really nice, (laughs) really good response. Uh, If you liked it or our other podcasts, uh, do consider writing a review about space boffins or uh, the things that we do. Uh, It really helps us get more listeners. Uh, more um, converts yeah we want that don't we and then we'll come up won't we on the algorithms we do we come up a bit higher exactly Uh, this time we travel to mars to recall the drama of the spirit and opportunity rover missions and i'll be dodging seagulls to discover why a british river is crucial to a new international climate mission plus we'll be talking to two authors and scientists actually about the challenges of writing space books for children this is Delta Launch Control. Go for launch. Three, three, two, two, one. Engine start and liftoff. That's from the trailer for a new documentary just released on Amazon Prime Video, Goodnight Oppie. It's about the life and times of the Spirit and Opportunity rovers on Mars and has all the elements of a thriller. It has tension, tragedy, discovery and redemption. It's just a box of wires, right? But you end up with this cutish-looking robot that has a face. Ooh, it's alive! It's time to fly. Ladies and gentlemen, you are privileged to be in one of the most exciting rooms on Earth at the moment. Rover Diary. The signal from the vehicle is solid and strong. Opportunity is on Mars. What do we do next? Let's hit the road, pedal to the metal, and go see Mars. The twin rovers landed on different sides of Mars in January 2004 for a 90-day mission. Spirit lasted until 2009 and Opportunity until 2018. The movie, which mixes interviews with archive and new CGI, tells the story of the mission and the developing relationship between controllers on the ground and the rovers on Mars. And as you're about to hear, these rovers were brimming with personality. I've been chatting to two of those featured in the film, rover engineer Doug Ellison, who now works on Curiosity, and JPL research scientist Abigail Freeman. Abigail was in the control room when Opportunity landed on Mars, not as a scientist, but a high school student. I asked her what it was like to see herself in that footage. Oh, my goodness. Yes. The first time I saw the film, when it it popped up and I saw myself as 16-year-old me, first of all, I couldn't believe that they found footage of me in the room. And it was just like so many feelings about, wow, look at how small I was. But then also, I can't believe that 
that was me and I went from there to where I am now and you know now I work in the same rooms that that footage is from and all the people in that footage are my work colleagues uh it's kind of a strange feeling but it was so wonderful you all look a little bit overwhelmed there you know and just wonder what the I mean I know it's you know you were 16 but what the atmosphere was like or what it was like to sort of be in that room because it could have gone wrong I mean you know there was no guarantee it was going to work yeah oh man I love that question it absolutely could have gone wrong. The The good news was that I was there for opportunity landing. And so Spirit had already landed successfully. Um, Spirit actually had the big memory anomaly like right before opportunity landed and they had just resolved that. So there was you know, a feeling of nerves and anticipation about opportunity, but we were also feeling pretty good that, well, at least we know Spirit's working and operating great. And, you know, me as a student, I, it wasn't like I had my whole career on the line for this. This was just, I couldn't believe I was in the room at all. And it was, it was like I say it in the film, I think it was one of the best nights of my life. I remember every single detail of that night, even though it was, you know, 20 years ago at this point. So exciting just talking to all the people. I baked cookies for people. I remember that. Um, I met Bill Nye, the science guy that night. That was such a thrill. And obviously the best part of the night was when those first images started coming in and they were just so different and so amazing. And then you end up working on these these rovers. At what point did you become attached to them? Because I'm really struck by the way everyone talks about these rovers, whether it's Spirit or Opportunity or more recently Curiosity Perseverance, with emotion, with a, a like a family attachment to them yeah i mean gosh when i think i've always been attached you know oppie set the career of my life the trajectory of my life how could i not always love her and and just be so privileged to be a, a part of her journey around mars and yeah i will say i work on the curiosity rover now too and like i feel that same attachment to curiosity as this this is my girl and she's taking me around the surface of mars and how wonderful to have this as a traveling guide why do you think that is i mean they they they're just machines they are just machines but it's it's almost as if they're an extension of ourselves and, you know, we ourselves can't go to Mars. And so we're doing it through spirit and opportunity and curiosity and perseverance. And you feel like they're almost a companion that you get to walk with them on the surface and see what they see and, you know, sniff the rocks they sniff. And it's it's such a great feeling. Uh, my name is Doug Ellison, and I am the planning team chief for the Curiosity Mars rover now. I'm very interested in how the rover well the rovers became almost humanized and i wonder whether that was a conscious decision during the mission or whether that was something that just kind of evolved and sort of happened without you really noticing it it sneaks up on you um you find yourself uh, especially when you're doing mission operations putting yourself inside the rover like you're thinking about driving in that crazy suspension system and you start moving like the the, the suspension with your arms or you start moving the mast or you you like the robotic arm has almost exactly the same dimensions as a human arm in fact steve squires will tell you it's exactly the same dimensions as his arm um and you you end up feeling like you're a little piece of that that robot as a result i don't think anyone consciously went I'm going to do a better job if I think about this thing as my cuddly pet robot. But you learn to 
sympathize with it almost. You learn to feel like you're a part of it. You learn to put yourself in that robot to try and better understand the implications of what you're trying to get it to do. And when it comes to these robots, you've got twin robots. One that just seemed to have all sorts of problems from its, you know, from its development to its testing to it, it's uh, ending up in somewhere that wasn't any likely to be in any water on Mars. Um, I, I guess, you know, was how did that develop? It it is so strange that two identical twin robots ended up with personality. It's like buying two laptops and expecting them to have personalities, right? But it, it that's just how it happens. Spirit would always, during development, Spirit would have... And back then, it wasn't even called Spirit. It was just called Mer 2. It would come across tests first, and with the first time testing a complicated system, there'd be something wrong. You'd fix it. The Opportunity rover would come through, pass with flying colors. And so Opportunity always had this kind of reputation of just being good at this and Spirit being a little troublesome. And when they get to their respective landing sites, like less than you know, 12 or so days after landing, we almost lost Spirit entirely a week before Opportunity landed. Like she was, again, throwing up these problems that we didn't know we were going to come across that we then learned with Spirit and were able to fix with Opportunity. And even in the landing sites, right, Spirit had to fight for every meaningful scientific discovery she ever made. It was covering kilometers and kilometers and kilometers. It was driving up mountains, down the other side, breaking a wheel, dragging, accidentally dragging trenches, discovering, you know, silica in the soil, stuff like that. She had to work for everything she'd learned. Meanwhile, Opportunity just goes, plop, bedrock, aqueous environment you know barely had to get out of bed to make scientific discoveries i, I saw i'm not sure i can't remember who described it in this in the film it's described as a spirit described as a hard-working blue-collar rover I that's Steve, like yes. that distinction. yeah she, she was what she was our she was our tough hard-working rover she had a tougher life absolutely the landing site was harder the science was harder to find you know we very nearly lost her literally less than two weeks in um very very nearly and was just kind of feisty, whereas Opportunity just landed straight in front of awesome science and kind of knocked it out of the park every day thereafter. Uh, and let's talk about then the, the science of of Opportunity, because I mean that there was uh, it was uh, it's difficult to, to sort of imagine really. There was only a theory that there was flowing water on Mars. You know, there was only sort of some tantalizing evidence that there might be, but I mean it really just changed things, didn't it? Completely. I mean, we saw from orbit that there were these hints that there was liquid water. We saw things that look like river valleys. And then we found the mineral hematite, which often forms in water from orbit. But it can form in many different ways. You need the full geologic context to really pin that down. And it was incredible that Opportunity found that, you know, day, within days of landing that the rocks at that site had indeed formed in water. Um, and what was even better was as the mission went on for as long as it did, um, Opportunity found now these different eras of Mars that both were wet, but were wet in different ways. And Spirit also made this incredible discovery of this ancient volcano with hot water circulating around. And, and if you're talking about water that would have been good for life, the water that Spirit found would have been probably the best. Uh, so what? how would, do we now understand Mars was? I mean, 
we, we we don't can't yet say it was green, but we can say it was wet. Is that right? Yes, there was definitely we found not only was there liquid water on the surface of Mars, but it was present in different ways through different periods in time, um, you know, as groundwater, as lakes, as these hot hydrothermal systems, they're called. And it's turning to be this wonderfully complex and geologically diverse planet. And I think the more we're learning about it, we're continuing to be surprised about all these different processes in its past. And we're learning that there's still so much we don't know. When you suggested that I know we should take a selfie on Sol 5000, what was the initial reaction? Was it, what's this frivolous Brit doing asking us to, to take a, a, a selfie for you know i, I, I suppose was, by now we're, we're we're talking social media now so it would have been yeah, like the, the rovers on. the rovers predate the use of the word selfie um, yeah they also they also yeah. predate wally by about five years as well uh so i'd had this idea long before i started working at jpl and i had mocked up what i thought it might look like for fun in my spare time in about 2008 and I floated the idea to Ashley, one of our rover drivers. She's also in, in the movie. And she was like, I, 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 think, I think we can do this. And I didn't know. She emailed the chief scientist for that day. And the chief scientist for that day happened to be the same scientist who originally advocated to take selfies with curiosity. And so we knew we had a chance of actually doing this. And so uh, we get online for the planning of that day. And Eileen, who's uh, involved in the microscope on Curiosity now, uh, during the big planning meeting, she said, so I've heard some of the engineers would like to take a selfie, and I'd like to hear about what that's going to take. And we proposed it. And the scientists at first were like, you're going to do a what? The microscope's going to be out of focus. It's only black and white. Why are you doing this? This seems silly. And I showed them the silly little animation I'd made 10 plus years before and said, I think it might look a bit like this. And they all went... Oh, we should do that. That'd be cool. We should do that. And so they then all leaned in on it. And at one point, we even had people saying, where's the Earth going to be at the same time? Will the Earth be technically in the background and all that kind of fun stuff? And I tried hard when writing the commands for the microscope to, to take those images, not to take up too much data volume, because we got a very small amount of data home from the rover every day. And I didn't want to kind of push out important science observations on the same day with this silly little selfie. Um, and we knew they were going to be fuzzy and, and stuff like that. But um, they came out better than I think any of us could have expected. It came out really, really well. In fact, one of the scientists who'd been operating other cameras on the rover for 10 plus years, at a science, uh, science team meeting about a year later, he started crying. He said, I've never seen the rover. This is the first time I've seen the rover since it launched. Thank you. And I think all of us felt a little bit like it was nice to check in with her. We hadn't seen her for a while. It was nice to, uh, nice to have a look at the Argo. It was hard to know when do we say this is it, you know, some of the engineers said, I think we've done enough. And other engineers said, no, there's more to do. There's more to do. And I really think that we did a thorough job. And by the end, when we decided, OK, this this is probably good. Everyone on the team was really in consensus that we'd done the best job we could do. And we could see the conditions on Mars were deteriorating. And, you know, it was wonderful. The associate administrator of NASA came out and told the whole team, we all gathered together in the room that you see on landing night and said, we're going to give you one more try. And if you don't hear from Oppie tonight, then we're going to have to stop trying. And um, yeah, I mean, it was hard to hear, but it, we all kind of felt it was inevitable at that point that we tried so hard for so long and we felt really good in, in everything that we'd done. 
the reason we really miss the Rovers is because we miss the team that we were working with. And I'm very fortunate in that many of the people I worked with on Opportunity, I also work with on Curiosity. But it would be awesome. It sounds ridiculous, but it would be awesome just to have one more day. Like one more day with Opportunity. Just take a couple more pictures because there was something very... It's really hard to know what it was, but there was something truly special about those spacecraft. And I still miss them even to this day. And is there any chance that anyone will ever go back and see opportunity again or spirit again that they actually sort of search them out i sure hope so i mean wouldn't it be so cool if we could have footprints in the rover's wheel tracks i would love to walk the rover's traverse and see it with my own eyes sometimes you know in my dreams i can imagine i'm doing that that would be amazing Abigail Freeman and Doug Ellison both feature in the new film Goodnight Oppie, which is on Amazon Prime and is free to Amazon Prime subscribers. It's on Amazon Prime uh, around the world. It's a really brilliant film. I have to say, I watched it and I've sent a preview and the only chance I got to watch it was on my phone. So I've only watched it on my phone. So, I, so, so, so it seen, was great. You've seen the petite version. Yeah. So yeah. it was, it, I mean, the fact that it engaged me managing to watch this whole movie on a phone, I think says a lot for it. But um, apparently the CGI is really excellent, but I couldn't tell that from the small number of pixels that I was I was watching it on. Um, it It's great. And it's a, it's this lovely story of these rovers. And one review, there was a rather sniffy review. I think it was in the Guardian. And reviews are often sniffy yeah. of anything. And it, it was <laughs> suggesting that the the filmmakers had humanised these robots, and they absolutely haven't. It was the scientists and engineers that that had these rovers as. Uh, as almost their companions, as you heard in the in the interview. Well, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the doc yet, but I've watched the trailer, uh, and I will when I see it, I will see it on a, <laughs> on a proper <laughs> TV screen. screen. Yeah, I think we need to watch it yeah, again. Yeah. yeah, but it was very telling that in the trailer you've got all these very good sound bites from the scientists, and they do call the uh, rover they call it cute they say we're going to breathe life into it it's alive and made it sound like frankenstein actually so i'm not it's (laughs) amazing the progression how how they went from those machines to our avatars on mars and this is as as doug mentioned in the interview is before the film wally or any of those other you know films which have done that so yeah it was it was it's great Really good. Mm. And I also like the fact that, you know, Black Panther's mother, Angela Bassett, doing the uh, commentary there. What a wonderful actress and uh, what a great voice. And um, Doug, the the guy you were chatting to, um, I was trying to place his accent sort of halfway through that because... Lester. Uh, well, so <laughs> well, I'm not sure he's originally from Leicester, but he used to work in Leicester. It sounded yeah. transatlantic. It, it sounded like sort of American at points and then a little bit British and then American. And I thought, OK. Yeah, yeah. So he was originally working for a medical company in in the UK, working on on images. And in his spare time, he was putting together these images from from the rovers it, it, as a hobby. And he started sending them to, to NASA and then eventually ends up with a job at NASA. Oh, wow. Oh, I love those stories. If you've seen the film, do let us know what you think. You can get hold of us on Facebook and Twitter or email. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I think. <laughs> Podcast at spaceboffins.com. 
com. I did some media training the other day for, for scientists and I was telling them the, the importance of silence, pacing, because it keeps people engaged. That was my silence. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what I was also going to mention on social media is we will put up our increasingly awesome collection oh, of yes. space baubles and yes. space Christmas decorations. Yeah. So any anyone who follows us on, on social media will know that each year uh, we put pictures up of uh, our tree collection, bauble collection. And it sort of expanded, hasn't it? It, it began with just places we'd been to. And um, because obviously, naturally, our interest in space, some of the places we've been to include space museums and various uh, spaceports, which is why we have the Mojave um, Space, what's it called? The Mojave Space Desert. What's its official name? I don't know. Name? You've been there. I know. Been there. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. oh, you mean the Mojave Air and Spaceport? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Mojave. We have one that's the Mojave oh, Air there. and Space. Yeah, that's, yes, there. we have yes. been there. That's, yeah. that's there. We've got various space shuttle iterations, one with Santa on it. I think one was from Cape Canaveral. We've got another one from 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 uh, probably somewhere in Houston, some gift shop in, in Houston. Yeah, we've and got it, a space chimp. But we've got actually we've got ham, yes, from when I was in um, New Mexico, and that's the Almagordo. I think it's Almagordo. Almagordo. Somebody can correct me on that. But anyway, I was we probably should Wally do our research before the we, podcast. <laughs> but the thing is, there are so many. And recently, we were in uh, Michigan, and um, our friends took us to Frankenmuth, which said it had the world's largest Christmas. Uh, decoration store and and it felt like that when you were walking it must down. Be. I mean, it surely huge, no it? one's done a bigger place than that. Oh it, yeah, it's, but, uh, but it's but like I, the biggest superstore you can imagine, the biggest Walmart you can imagine. <laughs> but it's more just like full a of Christmas. Of warehouses, it was. It was a sort of interconnected series of warehouses. But also, full of Frankenmuth itself um, is Bavarian. Is a Bavarian. An American's idea of a Bavarian town. It, well, it was but founded it did, by Bavarians. It, yeah. it did from a distance, you know, before yeah. you see all the... It was founded by Bavarians, but Americans it's now got a little twisted. Uh, over the top, I think Americans really, you know, their <laughs> yeah. enthusiasm, shall we say. But it was fab. We had a really good time. It was brilliant. But what I've just realised, we did buy, well, we bought several Christmas decorations and we had our friends bought as um, a some more uh, as a day, as a Christmas decoration, uh, not a real one. I hasten to add with a little ribbon on, but you know it looks like it's it. weird as well because it's soft. It's soft like it's, like a marshmallow. Yeah, isn't it? it is. But it's I realised we didn't actually buy a spacey one because there was a space collection, There's a whole space section. But it didn't. Yeah. You know, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I've got better. But the ones that um, we did end up getting, we got a TARDIS. We already have a TARDIS, but this one's more a three. It's a nicer, yeah, but it's, it's a, a better one. one. This it was one, better isn't it? one. This is yeah. a good TARDIS. Um, I've got a Mandalorian, Ovs, and um, oh, a Bob Ross. An actual, and people said when I said I'd got a Bob Ross Christmas bauble, they thought I meant a sort of, you know, two-dimensional painting of a landscape with pine trees in it. No, no, it's a figure of Bob Ross with a, a palette and his paints. Maybe we should put him on the top of the tree. And we got, and we got no, we've got the, the teddy, yeah. the teddy, the teddy fairy. Yeah. Um, and also a weightlifter, and that was, um, which is a sort of young man, knees benched, you know, 
those what's they called that bar? It's I not wish the barbell. No, I wish bar this was video. I wish we could see. I know it's not barbell, is it? What's it now. called? The the the, the yeah, weights. It's a barbell. Is that barbell? I thought yeah. the barbells were the free. No, they're free... dumbbells. Oh, they're dumbbells. Okay, Ooh. it's a barbell. It's just it's a bell. It's some type of bell. Yeah. Anyway, we've got one of those as well, but purely because it looks exactly like our son. Same position. Who's a bit of a gym bunny and a weights mm. weights bunny. I don't... Who does it get that from? Not me. No, no. no. This is Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Thanks to climate change, we know that uh, sea levels are rising. Is that, that really the right tone of voice? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We've got a serious one. And you're going, thanks to climate, climate change. change. It's, like, it's like a DJ doing yeah. that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, should I do it again? We're leaving mm. this in, Richard. We're leaving this in. <laughs> Thanks, climate change. Thanks, climate change. (laughs) Thanks to climate change, we know that sea levels are rising and we're likely to see more flooding from extreme weather. Space gives us the best global perspective to monitor where the water is and how it moves. A new mission is about to be launched on a SpaceX in December and it's called SWAT stands for Surface, Water and Ocean Topography and will be the first global survey of the world's surface water. The NASA-led mission has some UK involvement through the UK Space Agency. And so I got out of the office to meet Paul Bates, a professor of hydrology at the University of Bristol, by a stretch of water that's important for the mission. Walk over some seaweed and stones onto the beach. Now, when you think of the world's surface water, my thoughts went to the Pacific Ocean, maybe, or the Atlantic. If it's going to be a river, think of a big river, the Nile and all the the Mississippi. So um, perhaps you could tell me why we're standing by a flood defence in the fog by the River Severn in Bristol. (laughs) Well, so the River Seven is going to be very important to the SWAT mission because this is going to be one of the places that that we're going to sample very frequently during the mission's calibration and validation phase. Why the Seven? It was just luck. We just happened to be lucky that when they set the orbit up, this is one of the few tidal estuaries that the calibration validation orbit is going to sample every day. So this is uh, really important to the mission because it's one of the few places where we'll get data on tidal flows to compare to what the satellite sees. Excellent. So once SWAT is up and running, or up and orbiting, basically, (laughs) it's going to be effectively over our heads. Essentially, we're standing underneath the the point where the SWAT satellite will transit across the Severn estuary from the Bristol side to the Welsh side, you know, more or less where the second Severn crossing is and transiting from this side to the other. And it'll map the water elevations either side of the the orbit up and down the Severn estuary and we'll get really detailed data on how the the tidal pulse that's coming in from uh, from the open ocean is transiting up the Severn estuary. So how is it going to measure that because at the moment we've got well it's um, the, the tide is out effectively but we've got little pockets of waterlogged sand and we can see the the river just beyond this sort of grassland bit here so where we've got open water swat has got two radars which it points at the target and because they point from slightly different positions the radar signal hits the water surface at slightly different times so when that energy is returned back to the satellite it's slightly out of phase 
And that phase difference we can use to calculate the distance below the satellite to the, to the water surface to within a few millimetres. So from 900 kilometres up in space, we'll be able to measure the height of the water surface above the centre of the planet to within about 10 centimetres. It's global, this space mission, so it's, it's not just the seven. What other areas of water have been chosen? We have some ocean sampling points where we've got uh, platforms and instruments, so the, the orbit's chosen to go over or close to those. We have major river systems that we're going to sample as well in France and the US and, and across the globe. But that's just for the calibration and validation orbit. Then after three months, when we're happy the instrument's doing what we want, we switch into the, the nominal science orbit, and then we get almost complete coverage of the planet. Wow. So that's a huge amount of data then. You're, you're getting elevation of water levels across the planet. Yeah, for rivers above 100 metres wide and possibly above 50 metres wide and for all lakes more than a few hectares in size, we'll be getting water elevation data. Every 10 days uh, there'll be a repeat uh, pass of the satellite. The sampling gets a bit closer as you get to the poles but even down at the equator you'll be getting uh, some data every, every 10 days or so. So why do you need this data? It's quite a, an obvious question, really, but also I suspect climate change is going to be involved in the answer. First of all, even before climate change, we don't have good knowledge of how much water is sitting on the surface of the planet. So if we're thinking of water on land in lakes and rivers, we have no idea the amount of water that's actually flowing down our river systems or sitting in lakes. That's really important for things like water resources and irrigation and flood control. Then in the oceans, really detailed water height data will help us understand the energy distribution within the oceans and, and the, the recirculations at very fine scales. And that controls a lot of ocean dynamics and we'll be able to get much better data on the, that aspect too. I must say, I've just noticed this sort of roaring sound behind us and because of the fog... We can't really see anything beyond the sort of shoreline. What is that roar? So at the moment, we've got about 100 metres of visibility. And we're actually standing very close to the second seven crossing. And what you can hear is the traffic going over. But can't Um, see a thing. We can't see a thing. But actually out there, lurking in the mist, is a massive bridge. (laughs) Now, once you get this data... What are you going to be doing with it? You know, how soon can you start working with it? We'll be collecting data here between April and June. Uh, and then we'll probably get the processed information back from the satellite in the autumn this year. We can start comparing what the satellite sees to the measurements we've made here on the ground. So the first thing we'll do is be able to check out that the instrument is working okay. Um, But then we'll be able to use that data to learn things about the the water flows and the tidal flows in the seven estuary. So how do macro-tidal estuaries work? How do they exchange energy? Where's the energy dissipated? What are the flows and the velocities and the recirculations? Why do you need to know that information? So that's really important for things like flood defence design. It's important for uh, ecological purposes, salt marsh planning and the like. And we just really would like to know better how rivers and uh, estuaries and coastal seas work and the processes that are going on. So it's, it's quite apt there. Not only are we at the seven, but we are actually by this sort of concrete stepped 
flood defence then. Yeah, it's quite ugly. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, nevertheless, you want to make sure that these things work pr- correctly. And, and being able to have a better understanding of what the flow processes in estuaries are and then be able to model those with good computer models helps in things like our, uh, designing the defences like we're standing next to here. Now, as it happens, um, a couple of months ago, I was in the south of France at the Thalassolania Spas clean rooms, working on something for another mission. But I saw SWAT. You saw it in wow. the <laughs> in the in the clean room. But they specifically said when we were filming, "Don't put your cameras near there. Don't point that because you know that's uh, that's NASA's. That's NASA's. We don't uh, want to get into okay. trouble." And this is it. This isn't. ESA at all, which it sort of ex- I sort of expect um, really for something like this. Maybe maybe I shouldn't, but uh, ESA aren't involved, but the UK Space Agency is, and and NASA obviously because yeah. they told me so. But who else? Well, the the Canadian Space Agency as well, and CNES, the French Space Agency. So there's an interesting story here. We originally pitched this to ESA. I was about part of the team that that came up with the idea for the instrument back in 2004. And we were hawking around trying to find a a space agency who was going to pay for it. And we originally took the idea to ESA in one of their new instrument competitions. And we we were the runner-up. They chose six missions, but not us. Oh, man. Um, So... We then took it to NASA and they very uh, very kindly decided that they would uh, put it onto their programme. I think we're quite glad because ESA, ESA take the idea and run with it, whereas actually with NASA we've had a lot more science input into the design of the mission. And I love this because I use this approach with everything, whether it's commissioning radio documentaries or you know, selling science pieces to papers. It's like if, if, if it's a good idea and somebody rejects it, you just repackage it and sell it to somebody Absolutely. else. <laughs> As with satellites, as with research grants. <laughs> Excellent. So let's just wander along here on the stones. Well, I'll go on the stones, you go on the uh, beach, and um, launch then quite soon. Yes, launch is scheduled for December the 12th. It'll be around about midday here in the UK when it goes up. It's, it's been launched on a SpaceX rocket from Vandenberg in California. It's been launched at quarter to four in the morning there, which is conveniently quarter to midday here. So uh, you can watch the live stream if you want to. Oh, what was that? That was breaking wave. Gosh. I suspect given how still it is, that was a boat wake arriving at the shore. Paul Bates from the University of Bristol. I love that. What I also love particularly about that is you didn't notice that there was the Seven Crossing, this enormous six-lane motorway, but because you couldn't see it, it was in the mist. And you think, what's that rumble? It was absolutely blank. Um, It was almost like looking... At a whiteboard, <laughs> sort of beyond. We were lucky; we could just about see the, the shoreline. But after that, nothing. No, it was lovely. Nothing. Really, really, really enjoyed that. Um, just looked it up. Uh, the mission's currently scheduled for launch on a SpaceX on the fifteenth of December. That's the current countdown uh, date. Um, before we get on to chatting about children's books, I thought it would be remiss of us not to talk about another launch. And here we go. Ten. Hydrogen burn-off igniters initiated. Seven, six, five, four-stage engine start. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. It was it was a brilliant, brilliant launch. Absolutely. And, and the way they positioned the cameras, just like as a lot of people pointed out, 
on Twitter. It was the same angle as they'd filmed the Apollo launches yeah, it from. Yeah, was good. It was and absolutely awesome. And the images awesome. um, we've been well, getting back. still getting back with the, the Earth and the Moon oh, and the Orion yeah. capsule. And the actual absolutely capsule as well. That's, yeah. yeah, I wonder how the um, conspiracy theorists explain that one. But I'm well, sure they, they were flat. I'm sure they will. <laughs> you could see the Earth was flat in, in those images. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, no, stunning images. Um, really brilliant. Lovely to see Sean the Sheep on board yes it's it's funny because when i first heard that it was um sean the sheep i i was just like why why what, what, what why and then was it you or somebody told me that I, oh no i think it was somebody at Easter said that he's sean the sheep is huge in mainland europe I mean, obviously, he was massive in the UK, too. But that was sort of quite a while ago when all those lovely little films came out. The Aardman films were out. Yeah. The lovely little films. I mean, they still get repeated at Christmas. So they're brilliant. But apparently there is a sort of cartoon version of Shaun the Sheep. There is. That uh, has totally passed us by. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it's great to see. What's also fantastic is I'd seen some of those components of the rocket of the first components, oh, particularly that um, linking section which had the CubeSats in it. Mm. Oh, that's um, good. And I'd actually seen that. I'd seen it just been manufactured. And this is years and years ago yeah. at Marshall uh, Space Flight Center in the US. So having seen that and them saying, oh, along the inside of this will be these CubeSats. And it just seems so far in the future. Yeah. And at that time, it wasn't clear it was actually going to happen. And actually to see all this stuff that, you know, I'd seen the very beginnings of actually launch is fantastic so i am now enthused about artemis oh well i've i've been enthused about it for quite a while as you know and in fact why not we've done a plug each month for the last couple of months i'm going to mention again that uh, i've written uh, a section on artemis for uh, a book that has been we're two of the writers there's several writers and it's um with the Supermassive podcast team, and it's called Year in Space, and it's a beautiful book, amazing images, really good to understand lots of different elements of of what's been going on with, with space, as well as some s- historical stuff as well. So it's a, and it's a good for your stocking year. and a look yep. ahead. So yeah, buy Christmas it for all your friends. Sto- Christmas yep. stocking present there. Folks. Genuinely so, good and lovely, and, and they will thank you for and it. And a good description of Artemis by a wonderful writer. <laughs> <laughs> they don't think you have to push it that far. I know, it's a wonderful writer. It's okay. okay. Yeah, you need to sort of get someone else to say that. Would you say it? <laughs> Say it it's now. A, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good piece on Artemis. Thank you. Yeah. It's that gushing it's, sincerity about No, I wish I could, you know, take a picture of you now because you look like you're a hostage. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> a hostage video. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it is that time of the year when many people are shopping for Christmas presents. And if you've got children, nieces, nephews or even grandchildren, then you'll know that one of life's joys is trying to buy others presents that reflect your own interest in space. So I brought together two children's book writers who specialise in space and space science. They are Dr Sheila Kanani, who was part of the Cassini science team and now works as an education, outreach and diversity officer at the Royal Astronomical Society. Her books include How to Be an Astronaut, Space on Earth, and there's a new one out in spring of 2023 called How to Get Rainbows in Space. 
Well, she's joined by Raman Prinja, an award-winning science book writer who's also a professor of astrophysics at University College London. His books include Wonders of the Planets, Night Sky Watcher, and his latest is The Future of the Universe. We should say that Sheila also had her 20-month-year-old son on her lap during the interview. Um, It'll make itself clear why I've said that as you hear this conversation. But Raman began by explaining how he got into writing for an audience much younger than his students for his day job. I think I've always wanted to find a platform to try and reach as many young people as I could. And it's very difficult. I mean, Sheila, of course, is also doing a tremendous amount of work like this, where we want to try and reach children, people at a young age to try to influence them, to motivate them and raise aspiration to make a contribution to STEM subjects. And I felt this has to be done at a very early age. And I wanted to go out and go and reach the eight, nine plus in the, in the best way that I could think of doing and I suppose you know when you're not not an a-lister on tv it's kind of (laughs) the other option is to to try and find other platforms and that's why I thought writing books if I could write good books inspiring books this could be a lovely way of trying to have a two-way engagement with the young explorers of the universe that are out there and there are many of them and fortunately it's it's uh, I think it's been good it's been fun (laughs) Sheila, is that that the same sort of inspiration for you, this this desire to share the love that you obviously both have for your subject? My primary job is outreach and education anyway, but the storytelling has always been the thing that's attracted me into that role. I didn't expect to do this job when I was younger, but I've always loved writing and telling stories. and, And that kind of communication, I think, is something human beings have had since we were cave people, you know, um, in one form or another. Actually, the physical writing and and authorships came to me in a bit of a happy accident. I was um, approached by a literary agent after they saw me give a keynote at an Ada Lovelace Day live performance, and they wanted to talk to me because they thought I would write um, adult nonfiction but just sort of fell into children's nonfiction. And actually that fits a lot better with what I do. And um, it's much more natural for me to write for that age group. And like Raman said, catching them young is really important as well. You know, I go into nurseries and talk to three-year-olds about space and try to make sure that they know that it is for them. And that I think books do get out there a lot more. uh, I mean, TV programs are fantastic, but... Even those are not completely accessible for young younger audiences, and books will be around oh. forever. So, oh. you know, TV programs might be there for a little bit, but hopefully, our books will be picked up in a couple of hundred years and be put in an old library and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> and what's the you know the the sort of biggest challenge going from? writing for your peers or within academia to then writing for a much younger audience it's you know it's gauging that level one of the challenges tends to be getting that engagement uh, in that you want them to be able to understand some really interesting concepts i mean young readers can 
absorb a tremendous amount of really interesting information. And I think that's the challenge is to, to, to get it to a position where they can understand some of these incredible things about the universe and then critically be able to engage with older peers, parents, and teachers about it. If you can do that, you have this sort of continual conversation going on. And I think that leads to more and more inspiring sort of thoughts and wanting to read further. You don't want them to be left just in isolation and lost in a book. I think you want them to be able to get something out of it and be able to share it with people in those breakfast table conversations. Yeah, definitely. Making it completely accessible to that age group is... I actually find it harder to write for adults now. I think I'm in that kind of mindset of the way I describe things in that Um, and maybe having two young children helps and going into school and things you know that kind of experience helps me pitch it at the right level but I what I found is that actually although my books are for children most of the time they're read with the parents and actually the, the parents are getting a lot from them as well so space is one of those areas there isn't much of it in the school curriculum so a lot of adults feel like they missed out so they'll come to me and be like I never knew that and I read that with my six-year-old and that's really nice as well. After all it's it's parents who buy the books and it's also parents who have to read them out loud if they're younger children and we all know what it's like to read out loud a book which you know you might read out loud 50 times if they like it that if it's not well written you know, you do everything to say, how about this book? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. hide the bad ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is really important for this age group, you know, if they were a bit older or even a bit younger, um, I think it's sort of this sort of in-between age group that we, we both tend to write for, having that sort of parental involvement. And I guess where we write as well, we don't um, patronise or talk down to anyone, whether it's children or adults. So it's that sort of feeling of understanding and feeling safe when you read those things and not feeling overwhelmed or talked down to. And I think those are really important things as well. Yeah, that's totally true, actually. Yeah, absolutely true, because a, a lot of a lot of parents, you know, they're very busy. There's a lot of other stuff going on around them. So if you're talking about, you know, some exploding star or, or you know, uh, death of the sun or something, they only also want to know that amount, right, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's the key, isn't it? Because there are so many facts about, say, you know, a star. Yeah. Which ones do you choose to share with your audience? As it happens, I mean, I've got your books in front of me and it's lovely actually to have all the, these wonderful, colourful books <laughs> in the <laughs> studio here. And like, you know, Raman's one, I just opened it at random and got Scorched Earth, where more than five billion years from now, the sun swells into a red giant star. It will swallow up the two closest planets, Mercury and Venus. I mean, it's part of that is choosing a fact that sort of gets your imagination going because you then start thinking, ooh. ooh yeah, without scaring people completely. I think it's important to, to, to have a book that probably has some kind of, as Sheila was saying, some sort of storytelling, some sort of narrative that runs through this because you know, children like stories in that sense. So I think it's nice to be able to develop some storytelling. I mean, this the book that you're referring to, I'm trying to take them to the future of the universe. I'm actually right, saying to them, yeah. I'm trying to say to them, okay, you've seen timelines in school in the past. You know, you've done Bronze Age and Iron Age and, and Stone Age kind of timelines. Here's a really interesting way of looking at it. Let's look at a timeline going forward. And how do we know these things would happen? It's because we study physics and mathematics, right? So we can work out a few things. So I think it's important to have a storyline and then 
build in, obviously, some in- the most important, interesting facts. Yeah, sometimes you have to go for a few wow ones and <laughs> keep it going. But but I think that's the key. You need to have a storyline in these books. I also just, you know, I just picked a fact of, at random from that book, yeah, The Future of the Universe. I mean, Sheila's How to Be an Astronaut, which I've got here. I I did enjoy the fact that you'd included a job related um, to space, unusual space jobs, and you'd actually put space lawyers in it because um, I got to interview quite a few space lawyers when we made a radio program about, you know, who owned the moon and the legality of lunar claims for yeah. uh, for the BBC. And I just thought, oh, great, you've put that in, you know, a space lawyer, because that's something that people wouldn't necessarily think would be a career. Yeah, that's what we wanted to achieve. And we talk about sort of space lawyers, space artists, the people that make the spacesuits, you know, the sort of fabric knowledge that you need. And, you know, so w- what we wanted to do was ensure people knew that not only behind one astronaut, there are hundreds of people to make sure that astronaut gets into space safely, but there's literally thousands of different types of jobs you could do in the space industry. And if you are interested in space, but you're not necessarily interested in the science or the math side there you can still be part of that community but in other ways and we don't want to lose anyone from the space industry we want everyone to join it so <laughs> trying to get as many people interested in different ways is so important i worked with the illustrator as well to make sure the the I- illustrations were as diverse and interesting as possible as well i, I was going to bring that up actually because both both books are visually beautiful they're colourful, but they, they've got different styles. They are gorgeous. Was, you know, the importance of the role of the illustrator yeah. in this. And you have to, in the same way that I got to choose which Wally Funk cover, you know, <laughs> goes on. And I didn't choose, for instance, that I was sent one cover which had the title of the book written in fluorescent pink. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, Oh no. no. Oh no. A book about a woman with a bloody pink writing. I'm not having that. Wally Funk certainly wouldn't have that. Would have that. Do you get a say, you know, are you just delighted, which you must be when you see, oh my goodness, I've got this illustrator. Yeah. Um, and I love it. Or do you ever have a say in saying, oh, actually, could you make the rings around Saturn just a little bit, you know, more interspersed or what have you? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, it, the illustrators are hugely important into these books. I mean, we work with people like Yan and others that I've been doing. The thing is, you see, right now, in, in for, for example, with space, there's a lot of direct glorious space images just available to people on the internet, right? You've got Hubble and James Webb and all these amazing pictures. But I think here what we want to try and do again is essentially drive curiosity by capturing the imagination and the and kids love art anyway so it's a great way i think of combining various interests and i think rather than going for direct images to get illustrators to lend a new dimension to drawing the young readers in is very very important we get some say in it of course because occasionally most of these illustrators may not have would not have a background in space so if you're trying to show them a, what a clusters of galaxies or a collision between galaxies might be like you do have to give them some, <laughs> some yeah. background information but it's so important the, the amazing illustrators that are out there that the way they're helping to also capture the curiosity and drag them into the book and just kind of many ways of going wow right that's what it is yeah, definitely. I've been given illustrators to work with. I haven't been able to choose my own, but 
like Raman said, I did. I have had some say in 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 the illustrations, and they've been fantastic. But one of the things that myself and the illustrators actually have always been really keen to do is subtly break the stereotypes if we've got any pictures of people. So, for example, on the front cover of How to Be an Astronaut, there is a person of colour as one of the astronauts. And within the book, there's people in in wheelchairs. And when we've got images of scientists and things, they're not like white men in, in white lab coats and things like that. Actually, it's funny you should say that because the one that stuck out for me, which made me go, oh, that's good, was when you're talking about certain space agencies for astronauts, as they always have done in the past can impose certain height restrictions. You've got one astronaut who's 157 centimetres tall, another who's much, much taller, 190.5 centimetres tall, and it's the woman who's the taller one. And when I saw that, I was just like, oh, wow, because that's that's not normally what you'd expect, but I quite like that. I just thought, oh, that that's 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 a good little, just a, a subtle little thing there. That yeah, uh, and um, yeah, yeah. where Sol's drawn the planetary scientist, she's based on me, so it's like a, a woman planetary scientist with a brown face. And you're not 190 centimeters tall, though, are you, Sheila? <laughs> no, definitely not. You're on, on, at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for you both, what have you found? the most difficult subject to simplify is there one that takes a bit more work than others and then consequently might be really rewarding afterwards as a result i think the thing i found most challenging there are two parts of it one is this notion that the more distant something is that you're looking back in time this is something it's so important when we're discussing space because we very quickly want to deal with looking at earliest times in the universe and the way we do this is because light takes time to travel. So the more, the more distant the object, uh, the further back in time. This is something that is quite that, constantly trying to get that across. And related to that is the sheer dimensions of space. Because when we talk about millions, billions, trillions, it can seem like, well, that's just one. They're all just big numbers. But actually, there's, a big, there's actually quite a difference in that, you know, our sun has a lifespan of, a total lifespan of about 10 billion years and very massive stars might only live for about 3 million. There is a difference. And getting that across, you know, getting these huge dimensions across as well, it's hard to grasp sometimes. And I think that's a major area. I mean, kids love to talk about black holes and all of all these things, but getting out some of those basics across about how vast the universe is and our place in the universe, it's quite challenging actually because it's hard to scale it up, scale down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously, you know, in schools and that, they learn about distances and time, and but things like, you know, the, the very big distances, and well, even with relatively, astronomically speaking, small distances, so, you know, in between the planets in the, in the solar system. Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, the distances between the planets in the solar system, even those are bigger than we can sort of yeah. really imagine. And I'm so glad you have the potential younger reader in the, <laughs> <laughs> in the background. This was sort of hinted at earlier on by, by one of you about writing for children. Has it changed your approach to communicating science to adults? You, you benefit from the feedback of it. You know, you realise that adults value their views also being taken seriously. They have 
a desire to learn and have new interests and knowledge and skills that they want to contribute. And they'll have greater trust in public policy making from that. So I think you begin to realize it's, it's very important to engage them at the same time, if you like. It's what we were referring to earlier on, to have those conversations collectively and to have material that actually can be read by a whole range of people. I think that feedback you're getting also develops your own skills further. You know, you gave a public lecture, you, 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 you understood from some concepts didn't get across very well, you, you develop your skills. Professor Raman Prinjar and Dr. Sheila Kanani. And um, yeah, do their beautiful books, as you could hear me sort of enthusing about them. So uh, do get How to Be an Astronaut, that's out, as well as Sheila's other books, and um, The Future of the Universe by Raman. They Universe. Love even that, and the future of the universe by Raman. Uh, do get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Do also please think about writing a review about space boffins. We're kindly supported by the UK Space Agency, and we have some great interviews planned and in the bag. Yeah, yeah, and we actually have a, a wealth of fantastic materials. I did promise you an interview uh, about space toilets um, <laughs> last time, but we've we've we'll held that over, so that'll either be in December or January. That with Matthias. Oh, I mean, you know. To be fair to him, that wasn't the intent. You know, I didn't pitch the interview to ESA as here's an interview on space toilets. We did talk about other things as well, um, but it was fascinating. Um, that's the interview with M- Matthias Mara um, from, from ESA. Yeah, from um, from ESA. We also, as Sue mentioned, just come back from the states. Uh, we interviewed Mike Massimino. He's best known as the astronaut who spacewalked to fix the Hubble Space Telescope on during two missions and also for uh, his appearances in the big bang theory we didn't talk about that but we no we did, did talk we about, sort of talked about we've that done that before time, yeah so we wanted to give you something different this time yeah. and it is a different it's interview. really interesting and actually interview. he was um he was much more relaxed with us this time wasn't he and he was very funny very funny very funny and we really, really interesting enjoyed yeah it. really interesting uh, interview yeah. sort of talking about uh, a legacy of apollo and looking ahead to artemis really great i also found him interview attractive didn't i i, I did embarrass <laughs> yeah, I think, myself i think it was, oh, it, it was all a bit it was all a bit it was all a bit awkward everyone was a what little was bit awkward oh yeah. god oh, we'll have to mention that when we yeah, get what, what i actually said i'm not sure after the end of the interview yeah he's probably taken out a restraining order on me but um we'll, we'll tell you oh i will reveal yeah. the excruciating <laughs> thing that i said to him yeah. um at the yeah. end of the interview you once know, it's gone out use your inside voice i know i know i'm so sorry about that um, we also have an interview planned with NASA's outgoing head of science, Thomas Zaburkin, which oh, should be good. sounds great, doesn't it? Anyway, we've so, still got another podcast to go before Christmas, haven't we? That's so the plan. Look out for that. So there'll be, be some fab. of that. Some of that will be in there. Yeah, so it'll be pretty fab. Yep. Um, and until then, thanks for listening.